As we come now before the very word of God, if you'd like to read with me, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Uh, you'll see the, the page number printed there in your bulletin if you're reading out of a pew Bible. This is here in the Old Testament, Hosea in chapter 14. We'll be here in a moment. Uh, but before we read, uh, would you please pray with me? Lord God, we know that your word tells us that whoever gives thought to your word will discover good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. We want those things to be true of us now, that we would, we would give thought here to your word. Uh, help us to discover the good that you give and to trust you in these things. By your spirit, would you open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our hearts to truly believe. And this we ask in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this is the book of Hosea in chapter 14. I want to take this morning uh, just part of the chapter, so we'll read just these first three, three verses. So this is Hosea in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity. Accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Now, it's been a very long road for us to get here, but we have finally arrived. We're not quite done with Hosea, but finally arrived in this last chapter of Hosea. So, of all the many words of the Lord now that he's given to Hosea, Hosea has now got the landing strip for the plane square in his sights. This is where he's heading to finish us. And so we want to pay special attention now to where he wants us to, to end. And rather than trying to take the whole chapter here all at once and, and, and miss some of the trees for looking at the forest, I want to try to take Hosea's last words according to their three major sections. Uh, so the three themes of these three sections of this last chapter that we find here are the theme of returning, restoring, and reflecting. So that will be our trajectory in the, in the coming weeks, Lord willing. That's the landing strip that we're going to be ending on. Today, we're just taking up the first of those. So these first three verses here in this last chapter, you can see this theme is really easy to see because the very first word of the chapter, here we have the theme of return. That's the call here, return. This is not unique to just the last chapter of Hosea. I mean, the return of Israel has been a major call, perhaps the major call in this whole book. 
So it's been a while ago now since we first started this up, but you may remember, if you've been here, how the book of Hosea begins. So the first three chapters are different than the whole rest. The whole rest are kind of rough, big prophecies, indictments uh, from the Lord through Hosea. But those first three chapters are, are different. In the first three chapters of the book, remember, we get this graphic picture of Hosea, the man, and his family as a living parable. And their relationship is really setting up the message for the rest of the book. So the Lord tells Hosea the prophet to marry his words, a wife of whoredom. Which always makes me uncomfortable to say, but it's from the Bible. So there we go. And and so Hosea is supposed to marry this wife of whoredom. And so he marries this woman, uh, Gomer who's an adulteress and and is still out sowing her wild oats. I guess that's the nice way to say it. And and the two of them, Hosea and and Gomer, have three kids who uh, may or may not belong to Hosea. He acts as their dad, but may not be their biological father. Uh, And the Lord names these three kids for them. And the meaning of their names loosely mean war, no mercy, and not my kid. So, there's the family of Hosea. It's a messy business to be a prophet. Now, Hosea and his whole life then is invested in living out this word from God to the people. And the Lord has called him to this very hard task, lifelong task, not because God just likes to make life hard, It's because God wants the people, wants us to see this message in real time. So in this living parable from the prophet, Hosea's call is functioning like the Lord, that Hosea is to remain faithful to this woman who continues to run from him, to continue to love this woman who has so hurt him, to live as the Lord would, faithful and loving toward her. Hosea, on the other hand, is like the people of Israel, that she's described as unfaithful, which is really the nice way to put it. Uh, and, and the goal is not to just let her be as she is, be like, well, my husband loves me, so I'm good, and, and we're going to call it fine. The call at the end of that parable section in the first three chapters is for her to return. And there's a broader implication, Gomer and his wife now is the Lord and, and the people, that the people are to return and seek the Lord and come to his goodness. So out of that first parable then of the, this couple, this family, this call to return is sprinkled throughout the book until we find it now here where we are at the end on this, this landing strip. So we want to open our ears here, listen to this call, and really hear what the Lord says about this return. So that's where we're going to go in the rest of our time today. We want to ask four questions about the text, about this theme of, of returning It's really the same sorts of questions we could ask about any text, but the four questions about return that we'll ask are who, where, why, and how. Who, where, why, how. We'll focus the most, we'll lean on the how, but we want to look at all four of these. So, let's give it a go. Who here, who is to return? Who is to return? Verse 1. Return, 
O Israel. There's our answer. Return, O Israel. Not, notice, return, O Egypt, return, O Assyria, return, O Philistines, or Canaanites, or anyone else. In other words, this is not, Hosea's words are not a call to the people outside. They're welcome to listen in, of course, but this is a call to the people inside, to the people of God. Today it would be written, Return, O Church. The scripture does have a place, of course, for a broad call to the world, uh, but this call in particular is really aimed at us. This is for the sheep of the good shepherd who have wandered off and gone astray. You know, some Christians, anyone really, but some Christians in particular, get really wrapped up in what's happening outside. You know, worried about the state of society, fretting about the evils of culture, wring our hands over what's happening in this country. And so sometimes we hear all sorts of griping and complaining and fussing about how everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And while that may be true, sometimes in our looking at outside, we don't even give a thought to whether we ourselves are riding along in that very same handbasket. Folks who are focusing on the world outside are really missing the message of the prophets to us. This is not to say that the Bible doesn't care about the sin, state, sorrow of the world or everything that that comes outside. Of course he does. All sin is offense to God. All sorrow matters to God no matter where it comes from. We're all sinners in the church or outside. We all need the saving grace of Jesus and he calls all of us to follow him. But that said, we should not forget that when the scripture speaks about redeeming creation, He does that through Christ's redemption of the sons of God. That is, it's accomplished through Christians, through the church, through people who are in Jesus, which means this, restoration begins here. So if you think the words of Hosea are just meant for somebody else, for those real sinners who really need to hear this, you have missed it. The call here is to us. Return, O Israel. That's the first. Who is to return? Return, O Israel. Let's look at the second. Our second question is where to return? Where to return? Let's keep reading. Verse 1. Return, O Israel to the Lord your God. They're to return to the Lord. Sounds like a good Bible answer. You know, uh, this might seem obvious, could go without saying, but it needs mentioning because this is not, not often our first instinct. If I'm honest, it's sometimes not my first instinct either to return to the Lord because when we sin, when we act like Gomer in some form. We're chasing other lovers of all various sorts. When we sin and then we recognize that sin 
and we know that we need to return, there are times when we still try to avoid God. No, I need to return to him, but, but I don't want to either because I'm maybe embarrassed or, or ashamed or guilty or perhaps afraid of what might happen. And so as a result of that, those feelings, we sometimes don't want to face God, don't want to return to him. So we try to return, but not to the Lord. We, we return instead to something that's maybe next door. Find something that's God-adjacent, that feels like it's near God, even though it's not God directly. So sometimes people, in response to sin, will first return to a pastor or a priest or, or first return to the church, especially if you've been away for a while, or, or return to some ministry or some mission field, or return to the law of God. That's a common one. I've been in sin, so I'm really going to double down on my obedience. I'm really going to take it seriously this time. I'm returning to the law. Now, don't get me wrong. These things are, are good. They're expressions of God's grace to us. If you are struggling with sin wrestling with it, feeling strangled by it. I hope you feel free to come and talk to me as your pastor. I want to care for you, pray for you, encourage and support you. I won't spread your business everywhere. The church is to support you, ministries, the law of God. All of these things are good. But sometimes we use these good things to try to hide behind. We go to them next door instead of really returning to God. And unless, unless we actually come to God, you know, if, if we make camp in something that's next to God, something adjacent to God, that's not going to do us any good. In fact, it might even make things worse. Because if we have the illusion that we're near God, we can think things that aren't true. So if, I'm, if, I, if I soak in water all day, and get really pruney, but if I were to soak in water all day, I might think that I'm hydrated. There's water all around me, yeah? But if I never actually take a drink of that water, I will die. Of thirst. The call here is to return to God, directly to God, even if you are ashamed, embarrassed, feeling guilty, perhaps especially if that's the case. We are coming before God through Jesus, our great high priest. That we, that we, we don't want pride to get in our way to stop us, that, that we know that Jesus holds his arms open because he has taken away all the guilt of sin for everyone who believes. And so he's calling us right up to the very carpet of the throne room of God. One of my favorite verses about this that I hold on to, especially when I feel conviction of my own sin, is in Hebrews chapter 4. You'll recognize this verse. Uh, verse uh, 16 uh, Hebrews 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's where we're to return. It's to the Lord. That's the second. Here's the third question. Why? Why return? You know, we might expect that sin would be uh, involved up in it. You know, why do we return? Well, because we sin, or iniquity, or transgression, same sorts of things. So there's a synonyms for each other. And that's true. You know, sin violates God, it's an offense to God. So that fact alone is enough for us to need to return to Him. But Hosea just says, says more than just return because you've sinned. Look at what he says, verse 1 again. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for, here's the reason, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Because you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Meaning, not just your sin itself, but that sin has caused us to stumble. In other words, our sin affects us in a way that damages our ability to walk well. It causes us to digress. So you know how one-year-olds walk? Or two-year-olds? Where they have that little pit-pat, pit-pat, and then just poof, you know, for no reason? to stumble in their walking. That's the effect here. So here's what's going on. So for for a Christian, this is different for someone who's not a believer, but for a Christian, for someone who has true faith in Jesus, who loves him, we are saved by grace, not works. Not one work of ours, none. It's all grace. And Jesus then, through our faith in Jesus, has put his Holy Spirit in us and has made us new creations. Still flawed, but new creations. And we will not become old creations again. We are saved, secure in Jesus. Even though that is true of a Christian, we still sin. We're honest, we know this. We sin in small ways, in big ways even sometimes. Frequently, every day this is happening. Now, the guilt of our sin for a Christian is always, always and completely put on Jesus. That is, our sin holds no guilt. It's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That's what Jesus meant when he said, it's finished on the cross that that saving work is done. There is no more work to do on it. So that's a comfort to us, to be able to go before the throne of grace with confidence in, in our time of need. And yet, even though I have no guilt, no guilt is not the same as no impact. I say that again. In regard to sin, no guilt does not mean no impact. Sin absolutely still impacts, affects a Christian in ways that are often damaging and damaging to other people and even to the name of God. Which means that ongoing sin in a Christian, if left unchecked, 
will lead us to stumble around worse than a drunk on ice. And none of us wants to live that way. I want to be able to walk with a sure footing. That means that sin is not just some theological doctrine that preachers talk about sometime and, this, and the Bible seems to harp on. Sin has real, real, tangible effects on our lives. And we, we teach these things to our kids. We should. The scripture speaks that way in the Proverbs. Uh, the, the beginning of Proverbs is framed in this wisdom of a father speaking to his son about what's, what's good. And the father's not just saying, hey, son, don't do these sins because they're bad. Don't do these sins because you're not supposed to. Although I suppose he could say that if he wanted. That's true enough. But he, he says, don't do these things because the righteous ways of God are better. The righteous ways are things that are actually good for us, life-giving for you and for the people around you. So just a section of what he says, Proverbs 3, uh, verse 21, he says, My son, don't lose sight of these things. Keep sound wisdom and discretion, and they will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck, and then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you won't be afraid, and when you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do you hear the impact of holy living? That when we, we return to the Lord, the reason we do that, there are many reasons, but the reason given here is that we would not stumble, that we'd be able to walk securely again in paths of righteousness. That's our third question. The fourth and final one, I'll spend just a little more time on, on this because Hosea, Hosea gives emphasis here, but our third question, our fourth and final one is, how do we return? So if I know I need to, I'm, I'm to re, you know, it's, it's a call to me, it's a call to us as Israel, and, and we're to return to God, and, and we need to return because of sin and stumbling that that's causing. How, how, how do I actually do that? You'll notice, if we look closely, there's a very specific way he calls us to return. Let me read, starting in verse 1. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you've stumbled because of your iniquity. Verse 2, take with you words and return to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? No big offerings, no financial thing, no sacrifices. Take with you words. If you've got your own Bible and you like to scribble on it, underline that word words there in verse 2. Because the way that we're told here to return to the Lord is through words to the Lord. In other words, through through prayer. Now, let me unpack what that looks like a little further. Just a few caveats about what taking our words to the Lord does not mean. Okay? When we're called to take words to the Lord, this does not always mean words. Doesn't mean when we go to the Lord, it's always words. In Romans, we're told that, that there are times 
where we do not know what to pray. And so the Holy Spirit intercedes with us, for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know if you've ever experienced prayer like this. I certainly have, where it just feels like too much. I'm too sad, too overwhelmed, too exhausted, too helpless feeling. And I'm, I'm turning my mind to God, but I can't quite put words to any of it. There's a place for that. The Holy Spirit speaks on our behalf in those in those times. There's a place for wordless prayer. And yet wordless prayers are to be the exception, not the rule. Most of our prayers are typically words to God. Whether we say them you know, with our mouths or in our mind, that we form words. Prayer then is not just about a mood or an attitude or about a general sense or aura of prayer. Prayer is taking words to God. So prayer is not always words. It usually is not always words. It's also not many words, as in lots of words. Uh, Jesus tells us that when we pray, I find this really helpful, when we pray, we don't need to have long, lofty prayers. You don't need to pile up your words uh, so that they'll reach heaven, I guess, with them. You know? And right after he says that, he gives us the example of the Lord's Prayer, which if you look at it, it's just really short. I mean, if you say the Lord's Prayer, we do it together every week. It takes less than a minute. You know, it's not big and fancy. It's shorter than singing the whole song, Take Me Out to the Ball Gang. You know, and, and Hosea's words here that he gives us, are, they're not long either, this example of prayer. You could cover up the whole text with just two fingers. So we don't need many words. We also don't want empty words. That is, we don't want to just rattle this off without thinking about it. Just recite these words without meaning them. You know, doesn't it drive you crazy as a parent? Or maybe you do this yourself. I do sometimes. You need to say sorry to your sister. Sorry. That drive you crazy. And mean it, you always say. And mean it. You know, because we, want, we don't want empty words. One of my favorite old dead guys, John Bunyan, said it just really eloquently. He said, in prayer, it's better to have a heart without words than to have words without a heart. So we don't want empty words. We also don't want or need formulaic words. In other words, prayers are not just like a set of magic words that we need to get just right in order for them to work. You know, prayer is not like baking a cake that if I happen to put in baking soda instead of baking powder that it's not going to rise. When, when Hosea and the rest of the scripture gives us words for prayer, then they're more like guidelines for prayer. He says here, take words and return to the Lord and say to him, and then he gives us very specific words to say. So he's not just going to throw us into the pool going, return to the Lord and take words with you. Say something, anything, anything will do. He gives us some sort of instruction. Say these things. That is, here's a guide for you, but it's not a formula. 
So if we're to look at this guide that Hosea gives us, return to the Lord and say to him this. There are three types of words then we want to take with us to the Lord. This is where we'll end. I'll briefly touch on these and then we'll be done. Three types of words then that come in this. Words of appeal, words of confession, and words of trust. The words of appeal or words of request are that we're actually asking the Lord for something. We're asking that he'll, he'll do something that's beyond our capability to do. So that's the first word, say to him. It's in the middle of verse 2. Say to him, take away all iniquity. That's a request to God. Remove my iniquity. Remove my sin. Meaning, that's not just remove the guilt or the punishment of sin. That's already done. That's already finished in Jesus for a Christian. When he says, take away all my iniquity, he means take away my practice of sinning. Take away my desire of sinning. There's a different way to say it. Off the sin that so easily entangles me so that I can run this race with perseverance and not stumble. The toughest part, at least in my assessment, about this line, take away all iniquity, is that short little word, all, to request that God would take away all iniquity because I like to keep some little cherished sins in my back pocket. Things that I feel okay kind of getting away with that I tuck away because they feel safe to me. It's like a linty old lollipop jammed in, in my pocket that I want to pull out and give a lick on now, now and again. You know, so we hold on to sins of stubbornness Laziness, greed, grudges. I'm sure you have your own lollipops. You know, there are even sometimes where we pretend like there's a, a loophole uh, for sin. Some, sometimes sins are more acceptable than others. So, like a bachelor party, that's where it's acceptable to have a last big hurrah of debauchery. Not all are like that. Some are, are fine. But some where there's these uh, places, you know, the last hurrah before you get married. Those things are still sin. They, they don't bring us sweet sleep or secure footing. So we need to return to the Lord and, and take with him words of, words of appeal. That is, take away all my iniquity. The second category is words of confession. So appeal uh, talks here, at least, take away all my iniquity. That's very general, which in some way is good for us. But the confession, at least here, names particular sins to address. So it's in verse 3. Some of these might sound foreign culturally to us, but some of the specific failures of Israel that their source of trust has been in Assyria. We've trusted Assyria, this foreign power. We've trusted in our own horses, our own resources. We've trusted in idols, the works of our hands that we called gods. Those are the particular sins that are named here by Hosea. And we don't need to wax on and on and on and on about, about our sin, dig mentally into every tiny little detail about our sin so that we can itemize every little thing. And yet we still want to name specific sins and specific areas of sin. Well, that requires something of us. 
I don't have to go, sorry. I have to say, sorry for what? Change what? It requires some self-examination, some, some soul-searching to really confess those things. Now, even though I'm not going to confess, you know, Lord, I've trusted in Assyria to save me. I, I don't think I've ever done that. Uh, I'm not even 100% sure exactly where Assyria is. Uh, but there's plenty in me that needs specific confession. And if I really want the Lord to change me, I need to see, name, and say what exactly in me needs changing. To confess specifically, it's humbling, but God gives grace to the humble. Third category of words, this is the last bit and then we'll be done. We need words to the Lord of trust. Words of trust. And again, this is not just general trust, specific trust. So this is different than just saying, I trust you, Lord. There's a place for that, of course. But here in Hosea, we're called to say what specifically we're trusting about him. To say something true of God and then hold on to that. To really believe in that trust. So the final words of Hosea's prayer, you'll see it at the end of verse 3. The last words he says, the words that we're to take to the Lord when we return are, in you, the orphan finds mercy. These are words spoken to God. We're telling God true things about himself. Lord, in you, the orphan finds mercy. So telling him true things about himself is an act of praise to God when we speak to God. But we're also kind of hearing those words ourselves. It's a reminder to ourselves that we are really fully dependent upon God for these things. That on my own, I really have nothing else to offer him. My money, my time, my attention, all these things. I, you know, when I, I, I'm like an orphan with just empty hands. So I'm, I'm returning, taking with me only the words of my mouth. These words of appeal and confession and trust than to say, O oh God, helper of the helpless, father of the fatherless, in you the orphan finds mercy and the Lord will give mercy. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you plant these things now deep in us? Cause us to believe and to put these things into practice. Would you take away our love of sin, our cherishing of specific sins? We know our sins are many sense of pride and foolishness and jealousy and on and on we could go. Lord, Father of mercy, would you have mercy upon us? Help us to love you as you deserve. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.